to give us the, again, the uh, fairly immediate context of this morning's text, I want to reread Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. As he was going, that is, Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Again, that was last week's message. And then Jesus said something that was startling to him after he he made his comment, and that was that, yeah, you see this great building? It's going to be in a ruin one day. The very next pass and the very next verse then that we hit, which is what we're on this morning, is, and Jesus is now, the location has changed, was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And from the situation of the Mount of Olives, it's really more of a, to me, it would be a, a big hill rather than an actual mountain. But clearly from the Mount of Olives, you overlook the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be in clear view of the disciples and of Jesus as he starts talking now. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? Now in the immediate context, and this is why I read verses 1 and 2, when will these things be? would make us think that we're going right back to when will these things be, meaning when is going the temple going to be laid to ruins. But as you're going to see, there's more than that. And we know there's more than that to the question because Matthew also has a record of this conversation, but it gives us a little more detail. And the question that, that Mark records for us goes way beyond just a question about the temple. Matthew writes in Matthew 24, verse 3, and again, this very same scenario, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will all these things be? Or when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. So there's two significant additions there that Matthew adds for us. The disciples want the whole eschatological layout. Let me define eschatological layout. Eschatology is simply the big $25 word for the study of all things pertaining to the end times. Eschatology, the eschaton. It is the time when Jesus comes back for his church or the rapture goes or the Antichrist appears. All of that that takes place in the book of Revelation and things that we're going to touch on. All of those things pertain to the end times because technically... The eschaton or eschatology started the day Jesus rose from the dead. But popularly we think of eschatology as the study of the things that are yet to be. And the disciples again want to know not just when the temple's going to be in ruins, but give us the entire layout. When is this going to happen? Back when we were making CDs, old technology, because now you can get our messages online and you can make MP3s out of them, listen to them streamed, or however your preference is, or burn your own CDs. When I preached through the book of Revelation, the person who was reproducing the CDs for people, we would have them you know, sign up a sheet in the back, uh, and they would get a CD the next week of the previous week's message. When I was in the book of Revelation, 
We kept ordering CDs by the cases because the woman producing them for us said that we have shattered and we're shattering every week all previous records of numbers of requests for the message in the book of Revelation, which again, classically, we think of it as being all about the eschaton, all about eschatology. When will all these things be? Jesus answers, sort of. See to it that no one misleads you. As I review the decades since I became a believer in the 70s, within the church of Jesus Christ, just in Christendom, if you will, there was a... It's seemingly an insatiable desire to know what lies ahead, to know about all things eschatological, whether they were familiar with that phrase or not, or that word rather. And you may remember, those of you who were around back in the 70s, one of the hottest authors and the hottest books of the time was by Hal Lindsey. Remember the name of it? The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was about all things eschatological. Now, that was then. And honestly, I don't believe that that is still the case. And I'm not talking about, you know, just only about faith, but again, about Christendom, about the church overall in this, as well as many other countries, as the prosperity gospel expands. And as the prosperity gospel expands, and all that that means concerning the prosperity God who basically exists to grant all your wishes for the day and in the moment to make you have a happier, healthier, more wondrous, lustrous now, believers have lost interest in all things eschatological. And they've lost interest due to the questions concerning the Christ follower in the future getting progressively buried because of the prosperity gospel and this this artificial prosperity God beneath a sparkly mound of abundance, leisure, and entitlement in this country. And in other countries, which amazingly the prosperity gospel is flourishing in the most poor third world countries around the globe because they are being given a false hope of this illusion of this prosperity God. And so again, everything is about the here and the now. So it shouldn't be surprising, because an increasing Christian existentialism is part and parcel of the ever-expanding prosperity gospel. Existentialism, again, just another big word which which goes back to various philosophers of over the ages that basically has to do with living in the moment. You know, grabbing for all the gusto you can here and now because an hour from now isn't guaranteed. So baby, go for it. That's a really crass portrayal of existentialism. And so Christians buying into that, whether they even know it or not, have chosen a not-so-blessed naivete concerning the future in all things eschatological. The questions about how the end will come and when have been pondered within the church, with the church getting worked up about it from the time that Jesus was present, right as he is here in Mark, and every epoch since his death and resurrection. And Jesus now personally answers 
without answering. See to it that no one misleads you. Which is a potent foreboding that there will be opportunities to be seriously misled. And then he adds that one avenue of this deception will be from many claiming to be Jesus himself. Why does he come right out of the gate with this broad warning first? If I were asked, or even when I am asked such a complex question, I tend to give the minutia and the specific precautions first, and then I follow it all up with a broad warning, figuring that, okay, if you don't remember you know, points one through eight, you'll at least remember the overall theme. But Jesus does just the opposite. And now, mind you, it's possible that I'm making much ado about nothing here. But then again, perhaps it's because the many and varied levels of deception which are going to be ongoing are too many and they are too varied to enumerate such that Jesus couldn't possibly give some kind of a sufficient list covering every way in which the Christ follower throughout all the ages will be tempted to be deceived by the deceiver. But let's be mindful as well that what Jesus says here which is between, again, remember it's just between he and the four disciples who came to him privately, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. But it's being recorded at God's direction for Christians in every age to come. Meaning Jesus' answer isn't just for Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It's for everybody in every age. So in one easy-to-remember blanket alert, Jesus covers the overriding concern. See to it that you are not misled. And then he rattles off this list. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. He's given now a second warning as the list continues. For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name." Ain't no prosperity gospel in that. You say, okay, okay, okay. I can just hear Peter, James, and John, and Andrew kind of hear their thoughts or see that bubble over there. Okay, okay. But again, what will be the sign of your coming? What will we see? What are we to be looking for? Jesus doesn't tell them what to look for. He doesn't tell them what the signs will be. Instead, he actually tells them what the signs won't be. 
That's what we just read. And if you haven't noticed, the things that Jesus lists are very broad, and they are devoid of any reference to a time or period of history that mankind could, did, and does identify such things through the centuries. Here's what I mean. All right, thinking of Jesus' list generally. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, he says, let's start big, okay? World wars tend to be rather eye-opening events of history, right? I mean, I think we can all agree on that. When did the first world war start? 1914? Stop, don't answer. It's a trick question. But when did the first world war start? From what I was able to find, about 9% of the world's population was involved in World War I. It's a pittance. But the first world war started all the way back at the very beginning in the earliest chapters of Genesis. You're saying, huh, what? Wait, give me a break. No, I did. And I'm going to prove it. 9% of the world's population was involved in World War I. We go back to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. 50% of the world's population was involved in the First World War. It's hard to argue with. Who alive in here to, <laughs> who alive in here today? <laughs> Those of you who are dead, don't say anything, okay? What a knucklehead. Who in here today can say that you remember a time in your life, any time in your life, when there was global peace? Not global peas, global peace. There's never been. I'm not talking about relative peace or just, oh, well, there's, yeah, yeah, there's, there's been times of little skirmishes and everything else. No, I'm talking about consummate, warless globe. There's never been. And Jesus says, and turmoil is only going to escalate. There will be wars, and there will be rumors of wars. Now, what in the world is that? Well, <laughs> And I'm not saying this is what he was talking about, but some of us alive in here today <laughs> lived through the Cold War with Russia back in the 60s, actually a little earlier than that, but, but in my memory anyway, in the 60s. And some of you in here alive remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. And some of us in here used to actually have drills in school to prepare for a nuclear attack. And they were ever so wonderful. I forget what the uh, alarm was or how we knew. It was probably like a fire alarm, only it was a different little rhythm or something. And we were supposed to get under our desks. (laughs) 
It's okay, it was worse in the army. You put your vinyl poncho over you in the field. (laughs) And then, of course, you put your head between your legs. It's supposed to protect your head from, I guess, flying debris in the classroom or something. Right now, I don't know if you're aware of it. By the way, there was no nuclear war. There never has been. Things cooled down with Russia, thanks to President Reagan. But right now, are you aware of the, not one, but the three man-made islands out in the China Sea, created by China for the purpose of military staging? This is not rumor. This is not conspiracy. This is through United States intelligence of satellite images, even though China's denying it, (laughs) of course. What about all of North Korea's missile testing? Beware when there's wars and when there's rumors of wars. They've always been there. Jesus says, that's not a sign of the end. There has never not been a time of wars and rumors of wars since the Garden of Eden. Well, okay, what about natural disasters? Those are eye-opening. Those make the news globally if they're bad enough, like the disaster in Colombia. But specifically now, let's talk, what about earthquakes? Well, earthquakes aren't a helpful indicator of any kind of an end times clock. When I was the assistant administrator at Auburn General Hospital, one of my tasks was to put together a preparedness plan for a disaster with the staff at the hospital because we lived in a highly volcanically active area of the country. And in the process of putting that plan together and working with various people, I was surprised to learn that Seattle experiences roughly 50 earthquakes a day. Now, most of those are only perceptible to a seismograph, but they are nonetheless earthquakes. You have a picture behind you, I think. This is the, uh, it's pronounced the Messiah Volcanic Park in Nicaragua. And we were there when we went a few, a few uh, just a few weeks ago now. And what you're looking at is, is I mean, this, this, would, this kind of thing would never happen in the United States, okay? Hey, you're willing to pay five bucks? Come on, you can take a look. <laughs> what you're seeing there down here, Okay? It's more effective when the, the light, when it's dark and all. But that is molten lava that is flowing. And that, by the way, you're looking down into the volcano, and that's probably, I'm going to guess, about a 600-foot drop. It's hard to get the, the, the magnitude of the perspective there. But that is flowing molten lava that's coming from nowhere underground, and then it's visible and it goes somewhere else underground. And the, those clouds you see is, is sulfurous smoke. And you hear the roaring like an ocean of the lava as it turns kind of colors as it flows. It was the eeriest thing I have ever seen. Thinking about the lake of fire. Barbara has a phone app which monitors global earthquake activity. Oh, she's the life of the party, let me tell you. 
She has it because our daughter lives in a highly volcanically active area. Just from her, her right where she lives, standing on the, uh, we were on a roof of a cathedral one day looking out, and you could see at least four volcanoes, two of which, again, were active. You saw plumes coming out of them. And in fact, this past Thursday, thanks to my wife, there was volcanic activity, or rather earthquake activity, of greater than or of 2.0 or greater on the Richter scale in 55 different areas of the world. No, 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 they weren't Barb's fault. I just want to make that clear. Well, what about famines? Famines that kill millions seem downright apocalyptic. That word means seems like things that, that, that are, are what we kind of uh, visualize how the end time is going to come about. Jesus says, no, no, not famines, just a world increasingly affected by sin. That's what that is. But on the other hand, he says, but these things are not irrelevant They are indicative of the fact that the world is on a collision course. But these are only the birth pangs, Jesus says. These are the Braxton Hicks contractions of the apocalypse. Any woman in here who's been pregnant knows what Braxton Hicks contractions are. Any husband in here who's a father had better know what Braxton Hicks contractions are, right? And Jesus says that all these things are merely the birth tanks. Do you know what Braxton Hicks contractions are? It's commonly called false labor, all right? There's nothing false about it. It's not full-blown labor, but what it is is it's the uterine muscles doing calisthenics. That's what it is. Braxton Hicks contractions are the muscles that are going to be responsible for pushing the little baby out when the time comes. It's the woman's body preparing for that monumentous moment. Monumentous? Forget that one. Words with friends is not going to accept that. Momentous and monumental. You get monumentous. Jesus then moves his counsel in a slightly different direction, saying, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Be on your guard. But that's just our translation. And it's an effective translation. But it loses the nuance of what it really signifies or is telling us, because it literally means looking to yourself. What's the context? They will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. We call that persecution. And it's coming. I use that in the future tense for us, but it has been present in earnest, beginning with all that we have been studying in the Gospel of Mark, to one degree or another. 
Look to yourself means examine yourself in the manner of being on guard, being aware, being ready. Jesus doesn't come and say, if it comes, he says, when it comes. Be on guard. Self-preparation, not, hear this well, self-preparation, not self-preservation, is the God-ordained wisdom. Preparation, not preservation. So our focus and our effort Our instruction and our concern needs to be on our preparedness, not on what's the sign of it being right at our door so we can then get ready. Maybe. If there isn't something really important going on like the NBA Finals. Think of all the horrid despots of just even recent relatively recent history. Communism alone has killed 110 million people. Now, I want you to, for a moment here, I want you to try and imagine yourself as a citizen of Nazi Germany. We're back in the late 30s and into the early mid-40s. And now the death camps are developing. The gas chambers are in full swing. And... Jews, the chosen ones of God. Put what we know in hindsight out of your minds for a minute. There you are, you reside there. And the Jews, the chosen ones, the chosen people are being targeted, not simply by an Austrian madman, but are being targeted by national policy for extermination. And as if that wasn't satanic enough, Enter the scene of SS Captain Joseph Mengele, who became the director, the medical director of Auschwitz. And he had carte blanche, means he had no holds barred over anything and everything he wanted to do. His warped, satanically possessed mind could come up with for experimenting on humans, fully alive, no anesthesia, the worst things, I would enumerate some, but they would make you sick, and they should. And they should have made the citizens of Nazi Germany sick, and should have made the world sick. But it didn't until it was too late. Now, if you're alive, and are a believing Jew, or if you are alive and you're a Christ follower in Nazi Germany, you have to be thinking that Hitler absolutely has to be the man of lawlessness, if not the Antichrist himself. And that any moment, I mean, look what is going on. It it, it is apocalyptic. And at any moment, we are expecting Jesus to come, if you're a Christian, and to rapture his church out of this. But we know otherwise, only because of hindsight. Jesus continues his non-answer about when all these things will be. He says the gospel must be preached to all nations. Does that mean all the nations at the time, these are the things that scholars love to debate and write about, does that mean all the nations at the time when Jesus said that? 
Because that's vastly different than all the nations today. Or does it refer to all the nations in our time? We'll have the gospel preached to them. But what about then when a former nation is cleaved through one reason or another and part of a nation which had a gospel presence there no longer has a gospel presence there? Or what of a nation where the gospel had been preached but hasn't been preached or present due to geopolitical changes where now there is a new nation where the gospel hasn't been preached? Jesus continues, when they arrest you, not if, when they arrest you and they hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. I do wonder about this statement. And here's why. Does this mean that the Holy Spirit will override the individual's ignorance of Scripture and will give utterance miraculously at the moment. It certainly can mean that, absolutely. But, what if it means that the Holy Spirit will let you know what to speak by giving you miraculous recall of what you have prepared by being on guard and looking to yourself, all of verse 9 that I just talked about, and by study and discipline, having placed the Word of God in your data bank, called your mind. Jesus continues, still not touching on the signs asked for. And brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Not as a sign of when all these things will take place, but as what will be taking place throughout the ages as we draw closer and closer to all these things which will be happening gradually, Throughout the ages, in God's timing and in God's way. Now, I don't know about you, but none of this is completely satisfying as an answer to the question. But Jesus is specific on one aspect of this whole conversation but the one who endures to the end Jesus says the one who endures to the end he will be saved not preservation but preparation and now a third P is added perseverance The P in John Calvin's famous TULIP, which is an acronym, stands for Perseverance of the Saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of saints is just possibly the most troubling doctrine of all, at least as far as practical Christianity goes within within a local body. For all the various ways throughout church history, 
many have tried to sidestep the issue of perseverance of the saints. It keeps emerging through scriptures, even and especially into the book of Revelation. Again, about the end times, about the eschaton. Perseverance of the saints enduring simply says that the true follower of Christ will follow him to death if need be. Which means any notion of easy believism, a phrase coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor who was executed for taking a stand against Hitler, it means that any idea of easy believism or today you may have heard the phrase somebody used the phrase of the carnal Christian or the backslidden Christian is pretty much buried with the epitaph this one did not endure now that's just my studied Opinion. What follows in the rest of this text is a description of some of the things which will lead up to the end. And some instructions on how to live in light of those things are there. But Jesus still, again, never answers the question of when will these things be? But what if he had? What if he did? What if he gave them that that thing that's unmistakable, that sign that says, okay, it's right outside, maybe even knocking on the door? What if he did that? What would we do? The evidence from history is that we would fixate and be obsessed with preservation, not preparation. And you know, toward the end, actually the middle maybe, actually maybe the beginning, and into the second term of the previous administration, a word that that may have been out there, I mean it was out there, but I don't recall it being almost mainstreamed, and that was the, the word preppers. But it's referring to people and Christians, many Christians, preparing to preserve themselves in the event of all hell breaking loose, whether it's, whether it's financial economic collapse or whether it's violence in the streets and mayhem and uh, uh, anarchy and all of that. We heard the word preppers. And that's talking about people, you know, making sure that we've got our, 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 uh, you know, kind of the, the modern day version of the 60s bomb shelter. It's stocked with food, and, and, and uh, you still hear on the radio, oh, not so much, not so much anymore, just since January, amazingly, about where you can buy your freeze-dried food that will, will have a shelf life of I don't know how many years it is and how delicious it is. I had it in my later, later, later months in the Army. It is neither, it is neither delicious nor healthy 
But see, that's not what we're talking about, and that's not what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about preparation. That's preservation. And if we knew the day, I believe we would be, and there will be wonderful exceptions, I suppose, but fixated on the idea of preparing to preserve ourselves rather than preparing to be prepared for what is coming so that we can be used of the Holy Spirit that by His power and might and miraculously we will be a testimony to them, they, and those when all hell is breaking loose. Maybe your view of the end of the eschaton, though, is that the church is going to be wonderfully taken up in the rapture before that happens. Oh, how I pray to God that that is the way it's going to happen. But we need to be prepared for if our highly debated and highly questionable pre, pre-tribulational rapture is errant. And frankly, I believe it is. But that's just me. Are we preparing to be prepared or are we preparing to be preserved? And that is the point of what Jesus gives his non-answer about what will be the sign of your coming and of all these things. Says, I'm not going to tell you. Not going to do it. You just be prepared. Be prepared. And the best thing you can do to be prepared is to fill your soul, your heart, and your mind with the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God. And not just as an academic exercise and head knowledge. but to live by the counsel and the wisdom of God for all things pertaining to life and godliness. I'm not optimistic about the state of the church of Jesus Christ globally for when that day comes. But all I can do is invest myself, as I have for over 26 years of trying to help you to be prepared. Not to be preserved, but to be prepared for whatever comes. Not just then, but next week. And two days from now. And this afternoon, to the glory of his name. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, let no one in here, dear God, think for a moment that I come with this kind of a message as one who has somehow attained it. But before you, and I say before this congregation, that me and my household as many others in this body 
work at preparing to be prepared for what comes, whenever it is, whatever it looks like. You tell us not to be clueless about the signs of the times. We'll talk about that next week, but you tell us to be ready for whatever comes. By your mercy and grace, O God, help us, help us, really, to believe this and to strive to achieve it for your glory and praise. Amen.